arrive at, and nobody will know for sure who's correct until events have played themselves out, sometimes over a period of many, many years. And because the answer is so unknowable, and because any conclusion we might come to would really have minimal effect on the course of the events anyway, many times we just listen to all the opinions and none of them counts more heavily with us than any others. Since we don't really think anyone really knows and since the decision really doesn't depend on us, it doesn't seem terribly critical that we have to settle with authority on a particular idea. But then there are other times when the issues hit much closer to home. They are very, very personal. And we know the course of action is entirely within our control. The outcome may rest completely on the decisions that we make. And at times like these, the question becomes much more critical and penetrating. Who determines what I will decide? Which direction Will I go? Whose opinion do I listen to and value? Who becomes my authority? And so when I have a difficult decision about how I'll act during a stressful time in my marriage, who do I listen to? My friends? My parents? My kids? Whose opinion matters? Whose counts the most? When I'm making decisions about finances or a, a career or handling a sticky situation at work, where do I go to get direction? Mentors, magazine articles, motivational seminars. Who is my authority? Who do I listen to? That question can become critical and penetrating. Well, there were some people living in a lakeside community in the first century who were grappling with those kinds of questions. Who should we listen to? Who should we look to for direction? Who's the authority on the important matters of this life? In fact, a new teacher in the area was forcing them to consider these kinds of questions. He'd been traveling around their area for the past few months, encountering some of their neighbors and friends, and they had heard some good things about him. In fact, a few weeks before, he had come right to their lakeside community and, and some of their local businessmen, leaders in the fishing community, had started spending time with this traveling rabbi. The last few weekends, he had been speaking right there in their local synagogue service. And now, the townspeople were trying to come to some conclusion about their own encounter with him. His teaching was like nothing that they'd ever heard before, what he was saying, how he was saying it. It was so different than what they were used to. He spoke with the ring of truth. His words seemed to have an authority behind them. They were blown away by it, and they didn't know what to make of it. And then something happened. Something happened during one of their synagogue services that was so unusual that it was a bit scary. They weren't sure they could handle this most recent encounter, what it meant for them, how they should respond. And that event is recorded in our text today in Mark 1, 21 through 28. And today, you and I need to grapple with the implications of this event in our lives because we find that a response is expected 
when Jesus is encountered. Now, last week, we looked at the tough temptation that Jesus went through, and we reflected on what real repentance is all about, and then we ended by wrestling with the demands of discipleship as Jesus calls us to forsake all and follow him. And now we read in the next section of our text, in Mark verse 1, verse 21, it says, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. Now, even though Jesus was from Nazareth, the majority of his ministry was done in and around this village of Capernaum which was located on the northwest edge of the Sea of Galilee. This city was a hub of trade and traffic, and so it was a good place for Jesus to encounter many, many people. We've pointed out previously in the series that Mark depicts Jesus as moving rapidly from place to place and from person to person as we see him as servant and savior. Mark loves that word, you might remember, immediately. Immediately this happened and immediately that happened. But in doing so, he skips over some of the other ministry events that we read about in some of the other gospels. And so during the weeks uh, that Mark does not mention leading up to the text today, Jesus ministers in Nazareth his hometown. He calls some other disciples. He delivers the famous Sermon on the Mount that you can read in Matthew 5 through 7. And then according to Luke chapter 4, after Jesus preaches in the synagogue of his hometown in Nazareth, the people decide they want to kill him. And so he moves his ministry base, his headquarters, if you will, to Capernaum. And so we come to that text today, and we notice that Jesus wastes no time, as Mark reminds us, immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue, and he was teaching. Now, in those days, it was common for visiting rabbis to speak in the synagogue, and so it wouldn't have been unusual for Jesus, this new traveling rabbi, to be invited to teach there. The service contained elements surprisingly similar to ours. Prayer, praise, proclamation of scripture, and teaching. Now we earlier read the text from today, the proclamation of scripture, if you will, and so now we want to focus on this idea that since a response is expected when Jesus encountered we're going to take a look at three different responses that come up in this encounter today. And the first response that I want you to notice is that the people were astonished. In verse 22, the word astonished means to be at a loss, to be knocked out of one's senses. The idea is to be stricken by a blow or to be dumbfounded. Today, in our world, we might say their minds were blown at his teaching. This was a common response when people encountered Jesus Christ. In Mark 6, it says, many who heard him were astonished. In Mark 7, it says, and they were astonished beyond measure. And in Mark 10, it says, they were exceedingly astonished. Well, we see why people were astonished, because they say, he taught as one who has authority and not as the scribes. Well, a bit of background information will be helpful for us here. When the scribes taught, they had no inherent authority. 
And so they just leaned on other authorities that they liked or preferred, other rabbis. And so much of their teaching was just the quoting of this rabbi so-and-so said this, or this rabbi so-and-so said that, and it just became a competition of who could quote the most rabbis to support a point. But when Jesus preached, he did so with personal power and with intrinsic authority. That word authority means the power or right to enforce obedience. And so when Jesus taught, people wanted to obey. They were faced with a decision to make. By the way, that's why we preach and teach the Bible here at Garden Way Church. We are not just giving our personal opinions or trying to come up with clever insights. We unashamedly and unreservedly preach the word of God in the power of the spirit of God so that lives will be changed. And in the process, God receives all the glory. What a beautiful song we just sang a few minutes ago. To God be the glory. In Hebrews chapter 4, there's a well-known little verse of Scripture in verse 12 where the Hebrew writer reminds us, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and the discerning, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is powerful. And when Jesus spoke his word, people were astonished. The scribes were known for their recitations from memory. They would memorize quotes and ideas and philosophies and try to impress the people with their great memory ability. But that became dull and dry and dusty as they would drone on and on. Kind of like, uh, you remember the old Charlie Brown cartoons? Remember how the adults talked? I always think about that. Wah, 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 wah. I wonder if that was what it was like to be in the synagogue. Boy, can you imagine being bored by a preacher? Don't answer that. All right. But what I want us to see is that a response is expected when Jesus is encountered. And in this case, the response is astonishment at his words, at his authority. And so how about you? When you hear the word of God proclaimed, does it move you? Does it motivate you? Does it excite you? Or do you approach your time in the Bible as a chore, as drudgery, a task that has to be accomplished today? The people in Capernaum were astonished by the word of God. May we, brothers and sisters, may we be astonished each time we enter into God's word. Well, let's then examine another reaction that takes place in this synagogue, a second response, and that is that the demons were afraid. If the religious people responded with astonishment at Jesus' authority, now we see that a demon has his cover blown when Christ shows up. Immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Now, do you find it a bit unnerving that they were, there they are in church and that there's a demon present right there in the worship service? Well, don't be. Don't be because... Here's something I want you to think about. 
Demons love to hang out among ritualistic and religious people. You see, the synagogue had ritualistic services, rituals, without rebirth. They had rules to follow without relationships. They had sermons without the Holy Spirit. They sang music without the sense of God's majesty. You see, demons aren't bothered by dusty and dry worship services. But when Jesus shows up, they go just a little bit crazy. And so notice what happens next in our text. It says, and he cried out. That word cried out, it means to cry out in agony, like a, like a death roar. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Unclean spirits are normally undercover. But when Jesus shows up, they reveal themselves. And I think this is a sad commentary on the spiritual climate of the synagogue. A demonized man is in the service and no one seems to notice until Jesus starts speaking. The unclean spirit is literally saying, you have no business with us yet. You see, when he declares that Jesus is from Nazareth, he's declaring and recognizing Jesus as humanity. Oh, you're the guy from Nazareth. But he's also using it as a term of derision. You might remember another place in the Gospels when Nathaniel, one of the apostles, when he was first called to come and meet Jesus by one of the other disciples, he said, and this is in John 1.46 if you want to look at it, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's kind of like a, a duck or a beaver saying, can anything good come out of Eugene or Springfield or Corvallis? He says, have you come to destroy us, Jesus? And I want you to notice that he uses the pronoun us as if there's more than one or perhaps he's speaking for all of them. You see, they know their destruction is coming. This is very similar to another encounter in Matthew chapter 8 where the demons, it says, they behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before our time? We see in the Gospels that when Jesus came to the earth, all hell literally broke loose. I want you to think about this. You ever wonder why there's so many demon encounters surrounding Jesus in the first century? Because all hell broke loose. The demons went on the attack. And so this unclean spirit doesn't say, what do you have to do with me? But what, if you have, what do you have to do with us, all the demons? Jesus is a major threat to demonic power. And they all recognized it. And they sought a coordinated effort to undermine his authority. We see that the unclean spirit recognized the authority of Jesus. He knew who Jesus was and he knew what Jesus was doing. And so he does something really interesting. He intentionally mentions Jesus' name twice. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God, the Messiah. Now, it's important for us to know that in that day, declaring a name was considered a way to secure mastery or power over someone. 
And so this explains why Jesus immediately told the, the, the demon to be quiet. He didn't want any testimony from a demon. Later on in this chapter, in verse 34, it says, he would not permit the demon to speak because they knew him. You see, Jesus doesn't need a demon to be his marketing manager. Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. Jesus muzzled the demon and he wouldn't let him say another word. And in that act, we can see the strength of the statement that Jesus makes. But in the original language, it shows it even stronger. What Jesus said would not have been considered polite language in his day. He said essentially, shut up and come out of him. I've heard enough from you. It's like the authority of, of a dad correcting a wayward child or a judge sentencing the guilty with the slam of the hammer. Authority has spoken, a silencing statement, one the unclean spirit was helpless against. Then the unclean spirit, convulsing the man and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. The cry was one last attempt at defeating Jesus, but Jesus didn't flinch. The unclean spirit could not get out from under the authority of Jesus. The kingdom of God was at hand and Jesus bound the strong man because he was in the business of setting people free. And he was successful. To me, this is just a, a, such a fascinating account. Even the demons know Jesus and they shudder in fear. Even they obey his voice. That's because the demons are afraid. Now it's easy, I think, to, to look at this and we can get so focused on the unclean spirit and kind of the wow factor of what's going on there that we kind of miss what happened to the man who had the spirits in him. What happened to him? He was healed. Think about that. That is absolutely radical. A man was set free. The chains of bondage broken immediately. No delayed effect. Jesus spoke and it happened. He was healed. It's proof that Jesus' authority wasn't just a claim. He actually had the power to say what he said and do what he did. And the kingdom of God was surely at hand. No one else could drive the unclean spirit away because no one else had the authority of Jesus. Now let's think about this for a moment. How does this apply to us today, 2,000 plus years later? Well, here's what I want you to remember. A foundational truth from the scriptures. No one is too far gone for Jesus to save. No one is too far away for Jesus to reach out and to bring freedom. Because the kingdom of God is at hand, even the demon-possessed have a chance. And it also means this. It means that Jesus has the authority to change you. Maybe you're here today wondering, is my life almost over? Maybe your dreams have been fading away. Maybe sin is growing and your desires are waning. Maybe your hope is lost. I want you to know this truth. Jesus has the authority to heal you. We don't need to respond in fear like the demons. 
because Jesus freely offers this freedom. Jesus' authority is not a removed authority. It's a personal authority with personal implications. Jesus doesn't just have authority over the world in some general sense. He has authority over our hearts, over our lives in a very personal sense. Whatever mess that we've made of our lives, here's the gospel truth. Jesus came to save sinners. Maybe you can't imagine offering anything to Jesus but the absolute mess of your life. Well, okay, bring it, because that's no problem for Jesus. You feel like maybe you got a devil inside you at times, don't we all? And yet Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. He has authority to heal you. Don't be afraid. Don't walk in fear. Receive him with joy. Embrace that freedom that only Jesus can can bring. We respond today because a response is expected when Jesus is encountered. Well, that leads us then finally to the third response. And that is that the people are amazed. After this power encounter with the unclean spirit, look at verse 27. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. To be amazed, the word literally means to wonder with great admiration. It's a different word than the astonishment back up in verse 22. It has the idea of being rendered motionless. It's a wow moment. Have you ever been that way? I remember years ago going to the Grand Canyon for the first time. And the first glimpse over the edge at the majesty, and it was a wow moment. Just kind of stood there motionless. Wow. That's what happened with these people as they encountered Jesus. They were amazed. They started questioning each other. What's going on here? Who is this guy? That's because his words had great power. His message had might behind it. People were being set free from sin and Satan right in front of their eyes. This was no ordinary synagogue service. Once the Savior showed up, they had no category to fit Jesus into. What he was saying and doing had never happened before. Friends, if if Jesus can quiet and cast out a demon, he can calm you. He can free you from any bondage that you are under today. He conquers everything. Nothing is too hard for Jesus. You see, our Lord didn't come to just manage our sin. He came to be master over it. The man was delivered from a demon. And Jesus is still doing the same today. He is indeed amazing. Now demons, they they know more about the power and authority of Christ than, than many people in this world do. You know, we might get his titles right, but do we submit to his authority? You see, while Jesus is amazing, he doesn't want to just settle for our amazement. Jesus 
is looking for your allegiance, your commitment, your full-fledged following of him. Finally, I want you to notice what happens in verse 28 as the final result of this power encounter. Verse 28, at once, at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. The fame of Jesus spread without the internet, without texting. No one had to Google Jesus. People were telling their neighbors and their neighbors were telling others, have you heard about the rabbi from Nazareth? You won't believe it when you hear him. And so his name spread in the marketplace. It went to all the places because those who saw what he did couldn't stop talking about it. And folks, everyone we know, everyone you know in your sphere of influence, in your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, they deserve to know what you know about Jesus. Do you believe that? I like what the old preacher Charles Spurgeon said. He, he said, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Brothers and sisters, we are called to spread the fame of Jesus to everyone we know. Some years ago, I read the, uh, an account of a missionary in Brazil who discovered a, a tribe of native people deep in a remote part of the jungle. They lived near a, a large river and the tribe was in desperate need of medical attention because of a, a contagious disease that was ravaging the population. People were dying daily. Now, there was a hospital, a mission hospital, not too far, terribly far away, but it was across the river. And these native people would not cross the river because they believed the river was inhabited by evil spirits. They believed that to enter the water would mean certain death. Well, the missionary came and he explained how he had crossed the river unharmed, but they were not impressed. Then he, he took them to the bank of the river and he placed his hand into the water, but they still would not go near the water. He then walked into the water up to his waist and he splashed water on his face. But it didn't matter to the people. They were still afraid to enter the river. Finally, he had an idea. He dove into the river. He swam below the surface until he emerged on the other side, on the other bank of the river. He came up out of the water and he punched a triumphant fist into the air. He had entered the water and he had escaped. And it was then that the native people broke out into a great cheer. And they followed him across the river. Friends, that is what Jesus has done for you 
and for me. He entered the river of death and he came out triumphantly on the other side, the victor to show us the way. And now he asks us to proclaim his truth and his authority and his power and his message. Friends, let's make Jesus famous by putting him first in our lives. Our words and our works can make the fame of Jesus spread everywhere throughout Eugene and Springfield and to the ends of the earth. May our prayer be that as we encounter his power and as we submit to his authority, may we make Jesus famous by living out our faith, not in fear, but in astonishing and amazing ways. Let's pray together.